Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. Now here's your host, Brian Brodor. Welcome back to part two of my conversation with producer, director, and novelist, Paul Lally. Well, you know, we discussed this internally at our team here, our firm, that technology is allowing creators and makers to bring their craft directly to the public now, to the consumer or the masses. And the need for the middleman, whether that be a publisher or a movie studio or a record company, those needs are diminishing. And I think that's exactly your experience and that's exactly what you're speaking to. I want to go back in time a little bit. I love asking this question. You know, Tell me about your influences and what got you so excited about writing You know, in your uh, formative years as a writer. Uh, now that you're 10 novels in, you said you've learned the craft. Tell me a little bit about that journey and, and your influences. In my particular case, I always kind of envious and a little shy when I see writers say, well, when I was three years old, I was making up stories and I'm thinking, I never did that. And when I was 10 years old, I was doing short stories and I thought, oh, no, I never did that. So I'm the kind of writer and a novelist I've got you know, X amount of stories in my head, things that just grab me by my throat, and I have to tell these stories. But every day and this and that, no, I, I'm not that kind of writer. But boy, you know, one morning I woke up and thought, well, what if you did ride the Titanic, people experienced it, what if they did it in Vegas? What, what if it was, you know, it's a, it's a what if experience for me. So in my particular case, as a storyteller, I have you know, X amount of stories to tell, and where they get told, I'm living in a time where it's transitioning from straight print to ebooks to you know, other ways of doing it. And I'm thrilled that the technology nowadays allows the opportunity for a writer to reach an audience this way. Speaking of Ride the Titanic, I'd like to hear what your path was to that story and then give us a little glimpse of, of what it's about. Well, certainly the path was, and this was like, I'm not kidding. It's like 20 years ago or 15 years ago, whenever this first started in my brain, I thought, oh, my God. You know, I woke up one morning and said, what if it was a ride? What if you know, people wanted to experience what it was like to go through that particular, what I call a mythic disaster, mythic? And the Titanic, as a quick sidebar, is a little bit like the Iliad and the Odyssey. Long after you and I are gone, people are going to be talking about the Titanic. 100 years from now, 200 years from now, they'll still be talking about it. But by then, it'll have, you know, 16 smokestacks. It'll be pure white. God knows what. You know, mythic things, can, they just continue. They continue onward. And that particular confluence of sociology and technology and economics, it just was the perfect storm. And it's in the, the global consciousness, Titanic. And so I, I thought, well... My background in public television is teaching people stuff that excites me. If something excites me, I say, oh, did you know how you make bubble gum? Or, you, know, you know, the excitement of teaching. So I took the Titanic story and wove it into a way where if you've never heard of the damn thing, which I doubt, 
you're going to see how what actually happened, but in a ride experience. And whereas you'll experience it like Universal Studio has, you know, Indiana Jones or Disney, you know, this kind of experiential thing. So I did it. And a friend of mine said, well, if you did this, you'd have to do it in Vegas. And I said, oh, damn, exactly right. Vegas. So that became the kernel about three years ago. And I wrote the novel based on that. First person, he's a, a Disney Imagineer. I'm transitioning slightly into the story now. That he's an ex-Disney Imagineer was laid off because of economics, and he's out of work. And he does not want to go to work for a heating and air conditioning company. That's what he knows how to do. So he says, what if I did this ride? And so he's of that ilk. So he designs this ride, and it's all first person he's talking about it. And, of course, the, the cut line is, if you build it, it will sink. And, and I took that little, that's a cheap shot at Field of Dreams, but it's the truth. Because if you see the Titanic, what do you think? Down it goes. So they build this whole thing, experientially do it. They have a maiden voyage. I bring in James Cameron. I bring in Celine Dion. I can bring in all these public figures. And certainly this thing goes down in, in Vegas. And, of course, there's sabotage, and there's people who don't want it to succeed because that's what a novel's about. You know, you put obstructions. You say, I want to get from A to Z. What can I put up between now and then? So there's lots of that. It's a great read. It's fun. And uh, if Kindle works, fine. They've got 30 days to buy into it. If not, up it goes in both print and ebook. Speaking of the nomination process, can you tell us a little bit about how our listeners can nominate, you know, log sure. online and nominate yeah. the book? Go ahead. They certainly can. Kindle Scout is the uh, program It's in the campaign. Amazon is very cunning, and they're broadening the publishing imprints. But Kindle Scout is their kind of crowdsourcing idea, saying, hey, here's some ideas. You like these? Nominate it. And if you like it, we're going to look at it. And if we like it, we're going to publish it, ebook only. And so if they went to Kindle Scout right now, just type Kindle Scout in a browser, boom, up it comes. And you look in there, you'll find Ride the Titanic. You just uh, scroll down, it'll take you 10 seconds. You'll see Ride the Titanic, the little life preserver. Just get this. I love my graphic designer. The book cover says Ride the Titanic, a little life preserver, and at the top it says Titanic, and on the bottom it says Las Vegas. It's a bet, you know. I just, I love it. So it's there now, and it's, I've got X amount of days left. They have a right to my work for 30 days, and then it comes back to me. And it's kind of fun to say, look, let's do it. You know, let's, let's, let's see if it works that way. So, Well, it's a fascinating story. I love the idea of, Titanic of the ride in Vegas, and I'm sure. Oh my God, uh, yes. Before we move on, tell me a little bit about uh, your previous novel, which I believe you also released online, America. Yes, America. America is a alternate World War II history novel, which is selling great. People love alternate history. What if, you know, what if Napoleon turned left instead of right? What if, what if Robert E. Lee didn't have that cigar? You know, the, the sense of alternate history. I think it's just a little bit of esoteric, but I think we have an innate sense that things can go either way. It doesn't matter. Alternate realities. So based on that, that genre, I wrote a book saying, well, I wondered, I said, what if Nazi Germany had the atomic bomb before we did? What would happen? And then I wrote the story from that. And it is the premise that, you know, on December 7th, 1941, they drop a bomb and wipe out 
Congress because on December 7th, Roosevelt was declaring war in Japan, but he only got halfway through the declaration and the bomb wiped him out. So I was able to, Ben, there was only one person who wasn't there, and this is true, this is based in history. Uh, Frances Perkins was the Secretary of Labor, a woman, okay? Uh, the first female cabinet maker. Yeah. She became, she's the president in my book. She becomes president. And so America is really a story of how America is forced into neutrality because they've been hit by atomic bombs, how they come back into the fight through my protagonist and his adventure and that kind of thing. So that's America. And I'm very happy. It's selling great. And I qualify that by saying I'm not happy it's selling. I'm happy people are reading this wacky story. It's a great yarn. It's all about airplanes left and right. And I'm a, an ex-pilot, so it was fun to write about aviation. Well, you opened the door for me there. Tell me a little bit about, you know, your flying. I'd love to hear about that and how you felt the ease of that, connecting that into your story. Well, there's two heroes of the book. One is the protagonist, Sam Carter. He's an ex-Pan American Airlines pilot. And the other hero is the actual Boeing 314. It was a clipper, the Dixie Clipper. And this was 1939, this particular four-engine plane. We didn't have travel except with these big, giant clipper ships. So the other hero in the novel is this big, gigantic airplane that he flies. And it's key to potential success or failure of their final mission. And in my case, I flew these little dainty Cessna 150, you know, these little teeny-weeny planes. But I love flying. So I got, you know, Microsoft Flight Simulator. They have a mod for a Boeing 314, this gigantic seaplane. So I plug it all in, and I learned how to fly. This <laughs> truth in research, because everything's research. I learned how to fly this big, honking Boeing 314, and it helped me to have a sense of how, what he had to do, which is to kind of slide sideways into how important research is for novels like this, that you've got to know you got to know your business. That what you're seeing is the tip of the iceberg, uh, of a gigantic iceberg of research that I did. But thanks to the Internet, instead of, you know, 12,000 researchers that I can't afford, I can go in there and find out. I can see how much the, the British pound was worth in 1939, you know, this kind of stuff like that. It's wonderful. And that's a very important point to make here, if I may, for writers, is that if you're doing anything that requires research, which most writing does, Technology allows that to happen, and I just think it's, you know, I celebrate it. The through line I'm seeing here, and I was very tempted to make a tip of the iceberg joke for Ride the Titanic, but I won't. So the, the through line I see here is, you know, technology is incredibly enabling through the research, through the flight simulator mod you mentioned, and all the way to your online publishing. Every writer, I love this question for writers, which is, how do you write? Do you write with a pencil? Do you write with a word processor? What's your physical process? Well, when I began, I used to write longhand. I'm a great Montblanc pen fan. I have maybe four Montblancs now. And I used to write with this ink pen, you know, with a yellow legal pad. At the time, my, my late wife, Connie, would type it. And I reached a certain point in my life. I said, you know, this is ridiculous. You have to type this stuff. i got to learn how to type. I taught myself how to type. And I can remember being so happy. I said, I can't believe I'm typing the word the, the word was, and I'm not looking at it. My fingers are doing it. That kind of revelation. This was, you know, a thousand years ago. But so now I write strictly on a keyboard. But after I've done a gigantic 
outline. I know what's going to happen. I know how it's going to end. Then I start, and then I say anything can happen now. But once I've got the framework, and it's very important to have how novel ends. My hat's off to people who just start. I can't do that. And neither did Francois Truffaut, a very famous French film director. He would go on set. He knew exactly what he was going to do every day. He'd walk in. He knew exactly. And he'd say, well, that's how we do today. He would just you know, turn loose his control to the creative mass. But if they didn't come up with the goods, bang, we'd get right back to what we're going to do. So it's a lot of discipline. And, hey, if I can get up at 3.30 every morning, Jesus. Seven days a week, mind you. It's not. It's seven days a week. Out of the last 10 years, I've maybe had too much wine to drink a couple nights, whatever, sick, whatever, maybe 10 days. Uh, every day. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. Speaking of not knowing what comes next and being superhuman and too much wine, let's talk about travel a little bit um, because a very famous or uh, meaningful element of your work with Ciao Italia is bringing the program to Italy. And certainly you were doing this on a regular basis prior to a lot of other shows that do it regularly now. And I'm very interested in speaking to you about some of your experiences and advice and anecdotes about being a producer and a director, um, taking the show on the road and what I call producing out of a suitcase. Um, First, you know, in our particular case, maybe 15 years ago, when technology finally made it possible, uh, I said, Marion, we we have to go to Italy every year. And my thinking is that when I land in Italy and, you know, land in Rome and get in a rental van, from then on, everything's game. Everything I see is a shot for somebody who's never going to see it. So as a producer, I'm working for someone who will never have the money, the time, whatever, to see what I'm going to see. So I become the viewer's eyes. So everything I see has to look like Italy. Every shot has to be a money shot. It can't look like Summersworth, New Hampshire. It's got to be got to be red tile roofs. It's got to be this. It's got to be that. And it's amazing how how little you can do and get a huge effect if you go at it that way. If you think to yourself that I'm here for the viewer, uh, I can't speak for the producers, but I'm sure that they don't quite think that. You know, they're caught up with other things. I look at it and saying, look, everything I see, if it's the Coliseum, it's this. If it's you know this little river. You know, it's got to feel like Italy. And this particular profession of broadcasting and filmmaking, it's, it's a very honorable, to me, it's a very honorable craft. And you have an obligation to your audience that, in essence, they're not going to see what you're going to see. Yeah. I want to dig into this a little bit, but do you have any uh, anecdotes or any stories regarding traveling, capturing the show? Anything that's particular to producing out on the road? You can, you know, with a battery charger for my camera and it's in Italy and it's in Sicily and Sicily, the voltage goes up and down. I mean, it's like, good luck. You can have fuses blow here and left and right. 
And certainly one night, my chargers get all blown out because they had a, a voltage surge. So I wake up in the morning, the cameras aren't charged hardly at all. And I could see where the fuse had blown. I said, I need to get a fuse to make this charger work again. And I was thinking, how do I say fuse in Italian? Because I was early on in the game. I pull out my dictionary and I'm looking at the word and it says, Fusibile, F-U-S-I-B-L-E, Fusibile. So I get this guy and I'm talking about, you know, it's not working and it's Fusibile, Rota, I mean, the fuse is broken and he just keeps looking at me and I'm getting nowhere. And I never did get anywhere because this guy's from Sicily and Sicilian dialect is so different from regular Italian in Rome. And I'm just spiraling out of control. So the idea is that anything can happen when you're on location and you can't prepare for everything. It's impossible. What you can do is, is do your best and then stay flexible and have faith that something will work out. And rather than become suicidal when it doesn't, you just have to have faith that it's going to work out somewhere. And it does. I've been over to Italy 19 times. It's always worked out because I've said, you know what? This thing's going down in flames. It's a disaster. Un disastro. What's going to happen? Boom. It works out. So I would offer that to a producer just to have faith in what they're doing rather than get despaired and say, well, I'm doomed. Give me the cyanide. You know, don't do that. Have faith. What happened to the fuse? Did you get it fixed? Well, I never did. We never fixed it. But something else happened, you know, that we found another workaround. I actually, you know what? I put a piece of tin foil in, you know, like I worked, I did a workaround with tin foil. Jesus. Then I had to figure out how do you say tin foil? Christ, in Italian. <laughs> well, I never did figure that out. <laughs> um, give me your thoughts on, uh, you know, this is sort of advice for a young producer and they're considering their first time traveling. In your experience now, are there some must-haves or must-dos, you know, what's the advice you would give that person? It's a four-letter word, L-I-S-T, list. And not only one list, but like many, many lists. And to see them, to see, you know, what am I going to need, you know, and to see the list and to picture it in your mind. Because what happens is that there are so many elements that a producer has to keep in mind. And once he's on the ground, it has to be second nature. It's just like you and I walk down a street, second nature. We just walk, we know how to walk. And for someone producing on location, all those little elements have to be so ingrained in their system before they get on ground. Because what will happen is the fuse is going to burn out. The foreseeable is going to happen. But if you've got everything else, if you've got your money lined up, if you know what your next shot's going to be, if you know that you've paid for the rental, you know, those kind of things on a list. It sounds pretty mundane as you ask the question, but I have a list. And I go to the computer, and it's I have an Italy checklist. I have a studio checklist, stuff like stopwatch, time code sheets, welcoming to guests, all these little things. You line them up. And a producer is really, in the end, to me, I produce and direct. I do both, but I do it in stages. And a producer, to me, is just like a chef. You know, you're getting a meal together, and you're making sure everything works. You get the complete food lined up. Then the director gets it to the table and makes sure people eat it. And it's just a two-step process. But lists, in the end, I would say, it sounds kind of mundane, doesn't it? But that's what really counts. I love the analogy or the metaphor, the director, the producer, as the chef analogy. That is great stuff. Yeah, you know, people ask, well, what's a producer doing? I said, well, you know, a producer gets it into the control room, 
the director gets it out. I'm going to steal that with your permission. That's great. Oh, yeah. Well, it's just saying a writer eats his own young. Okay. So whatever we're saying now, I'll steal it. I'll eat it. I'll eat it in a second. Perfect. It'll be in a book. <laughs> a writer eats his own young. Isn't that heartless? That's <laughs> true. Animal, animal today, rules. Okay, so a quick sidebar. I, I was reviewing the, my next novel, which has really been done, but I'm kind of refining it. And I'm looking at a particular line in there that I remember stealing somebody, you know, a writer eats his own young. But I get to use it in my life history. I get to weave it into my fiction. So so it, for me, it's a, this is really esoteric, but it's like a, what's called a semi-permeable membrane that you can move back and forth. And I can move from television and executive producing and PBS and Marianne Esposito and being a director, and I can slide right into writing fiction. I can do this two worlds, and there's no hesitation. It's easy. It's taken a lifetime to do it, but I can do it. What's the connection? Is it storytelling? Is that the through line? Yes, yeah, a story, yeah. It was Marianne, it's a story of her passion for food and Italian culture. Marianne is a firm believer in healthy eating and that it's affordable, and the Mediterranean diet and she is convinced that that's a way to live in a healthy, happy way with family values. It just keeps escalating. It's like an inverted pyramid. It starts with Italian food and goes upward. And all these different little blocks work in. So I view that as her life's work, and I serve it as best I can as an executive producer. And the through line is for me that what I'm doing in my particular life as a human being I have all these little stories in my head that really excite me. There's not a million, like I said earlier. I feel like two or three or five or six, and that's it. I'm be damn. I'm going to get them out. And they're up. They're online, and here's the best part, okay? Here's the thing that joins these two elements together. That online, all of Marianne's work, 23 years, is available at chowtai.com right now. There's 1,400 recipes. I took all her programs, deconstructed the recipes, so her life's work is there. It's online. And what I'm in the process of doing is doing the same thing with my novels and that kind of thing. And when Amazon, and this is the best part, hopefully you'll like this. So I got my royalty report from Amazon, my deposit to my bank account last month. And it's going into a trust fund that I have for my kids. So it's all working. People are buying my books. People are watching Mary Ann, her, her segments on how to make lasagna, for instance. If you go to chowtai.com, type in lasagna, you'll get 15 different little video clips. Each one has a recipe, different kinds of lasagna. This is the way the website works. So my final song of praise for technology is that it allows what I just said to happen. Her life work is there, and I'm getting mine up, and it's great, and it's there. Well, speaking of the future, what's next for Paul Lally? What are we going to see or read next from you? What's coming next? You're going to read a novel called Bar Harbor Gold. It's kind of based, right at Titanic is about the Titanic and an ocean liner. But Bar Harbor Gold is kind of ocean liner themed. And it's based on a true story that happened in 1914. I live in New Hampshire in Portsmouth area. And a little bit north of me in Bar Harbor, Maine, one morning in 1914, a very exclusive resort, kind of like Newport in Rhode Island, all these people woke up in the Gilded Age of 1914, and in their bay was a gigantic four-stack ocean liner parked there. It's the Crown Princess Cecilie, a German ocean liner parked there. That would be like you waking up tomorrow racing an ocean liner in your backyard. What the hell is this? And that's the story, Bar Harbor Gold, 
is based on a true story of an ocean liner in the outset of World War I that took refuge in that harbor in the Gilded Age. And on board, they had $13 million worth of gold, and somebody's trying to steal it. That'll come out probably in uh, late fall. So that's what's next. Well, I can't wait. I spend a lot of time in Maine these days, and I can't wait to read that. That's going to be great. You'll love it. It's fun. It's a thrill. And if it weren't for technology, and I, I, let me add this because you're not going to ask this, but mm-hmm. I want to make this comment because I think it's a very profound parallel that the Gutenberg Bible, movable press, back in God knows when it was, you know, 1400s, I don't know when it happened. But when Gutenberg invented movable press, that the priests lost control of information. No more could they, you know, we know everything, you know nothing. The movable press stopped it, and literacy began way back then. And I maintain, and I have maintained for years now, that the Internet is movable press. It is as dynamic and revolutionary as that moment where the priests of CBS ABC, Lifetime, HBO, they've lost control of the information. Now you and I have it, and that's how I view the Internet. Wow. As long as the Internet remains free, that's how it'll be. The genie's out of the bottle, and I'm glad, I'm glad it is. Well, that's a great point to end on. Thank you so much for your time. We got a whole hour's worth of conversation. Yeah, it's we went been... on both. Well, thank you for prolonging it because it was fun to share it. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to associate producer Morgan Taylor, audio engineer J.P. Conk, senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thank you for listening.